Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television and theater about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one, I'll be trying to find out about the preparation, the excitement, and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. After training at RADA, Jason Watkins established himself as a stage actor, joining the RSC and the National Theatre Company, and received critical acclaim for his work in The Servant to Two Masters. He's appeared on screen in projects as diverse as The Crown, where he played the Prime Minister Harold Wilson, W1A, The White Queen, A Very Peculiar Scandal, and Dez. In 2015, Jason won a BAFTA for playing the title role in The Lost Honour of Christopher Jeffries. I was delighted to be able to talk to him about it during lockdown earlier this year. Well, yes, my guest this week is Jason Watkins, and the character we're going to talk about is Christopher Jeffries in the drama The Lost Honour of Christopher Jeffries, which came out in 2014, written by Peter Morgan and directed by Roger Michelle. So, Jason, thanks for joining us. I mean, you um, you worked with Roger before, hadn't you? Is that how the part came to you? Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, uh, listen, it's great, great to be on talking to you, David, and... Um, uh, um, this particular, obviously, this particular job was a, a big part of my professional life. So it's great to be able to share share a little bit with you about it. And yeah, Roger, I'd worked a lot with Roger, really in the theatre. Um, and he, um, we'd we first met at the RSC uh, when I was, I think, about nineteen eighty. Gosh. Seven or eight when we worked together, of course. Ooh, we were there se- together, yeah. Yeah, in that season, we were doing big grand Shakespeare's, weren't we, on the main stage? And then there are all these little li- smaller projects, and Roger ran one of those, um, "Kissing the Pope," I think it was called, and uh, we did it in the at the Almeida as well. The the RSC at that time had a sort of home for its smaller plays, uh, at the Almeida, and uh, as well as obviously the Barbican. And I, to be honest, I thought that Roger's you know, a friend and he became a friend from that time. And I always thought he boxed me off as a kind of theatre actor and that that would be, and he'd go and do sort of sexy films and, you know, I'd be like popping up. And we, you know, we, we did do The Buddha of Suburbia together, which was Roger's first project really, which did so well um, for him. And, you know, I think he got after for it and stuff. And so it sort of put him on the map. And, and I, um, 
and we, we worked together again, I said, in, in the theatre. But yeah, it did come to me that way. He sort of sent me a text saying, do you think you can impersonate this bloke? And um, I said, uh, I'll have a go, you know. Um, somebody had said, actually, around that time, God, you know, if they ever make something about that, you're going to play him. Which... <laughs> <laughs> Considering much as I love Christopher, he did, he did particularly some of those photographs, which on the newspapers he did look pretty eccentric. So to think that I could be playing him like as a knee-jerk reaction, oh, you're definitely going to play him. <laughs> uh, but of course, that's the point. One of the points of the whole piece. So yeah, it came, and and then I think they said, um, I said, yeah, I'll have a go, and I and I so I watched him on. I was aware of the case, and I watched. Um, some YouTube stuff and did those sort of really instinctive things like just, you know, I can impersonate people. And I thought, well, can I do him? And I didn't take very long where I realized that I could do him. And I understood, begin to understand the surface, you know, the exterior things about him that were interesting and the ticks and the, the kind of uh, vocabulary and the way he spoke. And then just trying to work out the way he thought as well, which is like, is what we all try and do. So at that point, are you, you're just painting it in broad strokes, really, just to sort of get in. But is, is it, can I just ask, is it an offer? Are they saying, or are they saying to you, can you have a go at this? And if you're not very good, we'll give the job to someone else. Are you on? Yeah, so you- <laughs> that, that one, that one. Yeah, like, uh, I think I was determined. I thought, well, I can, I can do this. And I knew that... Um, and I knew later on, subsequently, that I think ITV had other people in the frame, older actors, frankly. And why not? Because, you know, I was, uh, uh, I was what was I, 50, 50 something. Uh, and Christopher was 71, I think, when he retired. I think he was 74, perhaps. I think that's right. No, I think he was 71, something like that, at the time that the tragedy happened. And... Um, so that was my concern. I thought, well, I've got to make them believe that I can play that age. So I, so I had a sort of quasi-screen test in that I went down to uh, to Kevin Loder's um, company's office um, uh, where, where he, uh, Kevin Loder, the producer, where he and Roger sort of cook up a lot of their project. And they had a camera and we sort of read it in a way, but I thought, oh, here we I knew we were going to have a camera. So I thought this is going to go down the line to, uh, to another group. who are going to look at it and go, can he? Ah, yes, he can play a 71-year-old. And I think Roger, both Roger and Kevin were sold on me doing it, I think. They very much wanted me to do it. But it was, I felt that I needed to prove to somebody else that on camera I could look like I, uh, I could play somebody of that age. And did and, you have and, the script yeah. at that point? Did you have the whole script or did you just, were you just having pages or just improvising? I think we had, I think we had pages. We had a couple of pages, I think a couple of scenes. And I did one of those sort of weird things that I, I, I think I always say to sort of younger actors that, you know, you sometimes you have to sort of do whatever it takes. And so what I did was I actually went down, um, I went to Debenhams on uh, Oxford Street uh, and I had a little, this is pre, and it sounds really pathetic in a way because they hang about, he's kind of, you know, why would he do something like this? Isn't he got sort of, doesn't he have to do this sort of thing anymore? I got in my little suitcase and I went down um, Oxford Street and went into Debenhams and I'd, I'd bought a, a round neck, a round neck, uh, roll neck 
top that Christopher always wore. He always had these kind of sort of left bank 1968 tops, you know. And um, and I got an eye pencil as well. I got a couple of little things and I, I got some stuff to stick in my hair. So I just made a little gesture of what he might look like because I was so, I knew that I could play it and I didn't want there to be any doubt that, you know, that obviously with a wig and with a little bit of help, proper professional help, but I could hint a little bit. Now, I don't know if I've ever done that again, but I just felt at that part, I thought, why the fuck not? Why not do that? And it was quite subtle. And so I, I wore a dark round neck top and I just sort of darker my eyebrows a bit and just to help in that process, because I but, thought that was the process. But also the help is interesting, isn't it? For, because sometimes you think, oh, I'll do that so that they can see the external side of it. But actually when you do it as the actor, it has a, an effect on you internally, doesn't it? Yourself. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's that's sometimes, you know, for me, it's one thing will happen in a character, whether it's a costume or the way he walks or whatever, and it'll just start to click into everything else. Yeah, it becomes a it becomes sort of two way thing when we we're constantly trying to. It was the same when I worked on Howard Wilson. You know, you, you kind of um, I'm just thinking about your Gordon. Your Gordon Brown was absolutely sensational. You know, it was just so. Um, uh, I, I, um, I think we were doing the same thing is that you look for the external bit, but you really try and get, for me, it's, it's getting the rhythm of the thoughts. You don't know what the thoughts are necessarily, although you do try and think what they are and feel them instinctively when you're working, when the cameras are running, you know, you, you kind of, you're trying to find the thoughts that give you the line. Um, and uh, but, you know, it, it's the rhythm of the way people think. I remember somebody saying uh, many, many years ago, I was watching a documentary and there's this guy who was very calm and he an American and he spoke very slowly and he had this very easy way with him. And somebody said, yeah, he talks like that, but his brain is working 100 miles an hour. And they thought, oh, that's interesting. And I always remember that because people think it's the way people think that you can sort of hint at and the rhythm of the way that I know we can quite deep now, but you know, the way that things come into the head and how, how they come into your head and at what pace and at what intensity. And you can sort of from the outside look at somebody and go, I wonder how their brain works. And I think I did that as a kid. I used to do that, you know, we used to live in a in a sort of modest house that overlooked a street, and you could just watching people go by. I used to watch them physically walk by and half impersonate them. And then also you think, oh, I wonder what they're thinking, you know? And so, so it sort of, it, it comes out of that. And with, with Christopher, he has this sort of incredible brain. I mean, he has a very, he's, he's got a sort of alpha brain from somebody who from the outside you think is uh, clearly eccentric and um, not an alpha male in any way, a sort of thruster and a, but he's so, also, he's not worldly, is he? He's not of no. our world in a way. And what I loved about your portrayal of him, and it's it's interesting that, you know, you're talking about three pieces of work there that were all written by the same writer, which is Peter Morgan, you know. So, but is in your in your portrayal of him, we know the public, you know, with Gordon Brown, Harold Wilson, Christopher, we sort of know the public side of that. But what, uh, what Peter does and what we're able to do with his writing is get very much into the personal of it. Of it. 
Yeah, and I think that's what he relishes as a writer, isn't it? That he can embrace the, particularly in, in, in The Crown, the sort of pomp of that and the glamour, for want of a better word. But also, what would you be thinking at that point in that scene? What would you think at that point? You know, just think about Abavan, you know, what would be going, how would you cope with that? You personally watching this programme. And I think he, we as actors, we, we, we do that as actors. So we are being Gordon Brown, we're being Christopher in extremis, as Christopher was, um, and, and trying to share with the, uh, the audience, uh, portraying what we think, what we, Jason Watkins, would think if I was in that situation. And by doing that, it enables an audience to place themselves in that situation. And then it becomes a real journey for, its, for a viewer, which is what you want. You want them to be in the room. Definitely. Can I just walk you back a little bit? Because I'm fascinated of this image of you looking out of your window and seeing people as a young boy and thinking, what were they thinking? I mean, when did acting and the idea of being an actor for you become a possibility? Because you wanted to be a PE teacher, didn't you? Wasn't that an ambition of yours? Yeah, I was, I was, I was desperate. I mean, I wanted to be a footballer and uh, I'd, I had... Um, I mean, I, I played, I, I trained briefly at Wrexham Football Club um, in, in when I was 16 and 17. Now, uh, been, uh, now it's been taken over by a couple of actors, I think you could... I know, I know. There's been a bit of Twitter. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Ryan Reynolds, is, we just followed each other on Twitter because... Um, uh, but, I mean, yeah, I, I, um, I wanted to go into sport and I um, had real problems reading and... Uh, I had terrible dyslexic uh, issues as a kid and uh, I loved sort of performing in a way or just playing up a bit, but uh, I just found work so difficult and uh, I couldn't just couldn't do my own work and I, I couldn't concentrate. And so sport and, and, and performing sort of, I found my sort of home there. And um, I mean, I couldn't be a PE teacher because I just didn't have the academic I didn't get A level, O level English or maths. I mean, there was I was I got CSC grade four in uh, in in um, maths, and I think I failed my O level English. They put me in there because they desperately wanted me to get because they could see that I had something, and they thought, well, but I failed it. So, so I was a bit at sea, really, in terms of, of schoolwork. Um, but um, I did uh, O level drama. And then I did A-level drama as well. And the two teachers that I had, Yvonne Payne and Tom Sweeney, at the two, two schools I went to actually state, uh, they're sort of state schools in Hounslow. Um, they were quite inspiring. And I enjoyed Chekhov. I enjoyed the way that the sort of triangles you get in Chekhov where, you know, there's these strange like triangles that exist between characters. And uh, so the possibility of a sort of... Um, literary element to drama started to uh, I started to enjoy that um, and but there's no history in my family of it at all um, there's no no history of, of performing at all um, but I'd watched at the time play for today um, which when we were younger you know there was a lot of uh, a lot of that about you know, Alan Bennett a lot of Alan Bennett's stuff around and and, and was it the Monday play or the Wednesday yeah, play Wednesday play yeah. yeah you get loads and loads of them and there were like little 
there were plays, but they're little films. And, and then they sort of died out because people sort of started making films for television. The ambition of cinematography sort of came into television. But at that time, I saw a play, a, a piece called The Man Who Almost Knew Eamon Andrews, which is about a guy who wanted to be famous. And uh, it's just a monologue of him saying, imagining that he's talking on This Is Your Life to Eamon Andrews and he's this little guy who's really like, he's got all sorts of problems. And I, I wrote to the BBC and said, listen, I have you got a script for this thing? And the, pro the producer um, wrote back and said, um, uh, no, there isn't a script. It's not been published, but they sent me a camera script. So from the camera script, I made up a monologue and then that's the one I auditioned for at RADA. And then as a, I think Yvonne, my drama teacher, said, oh, well, why don't you do something else? Contrast that, do. So I did, he was quite a sort of innocent character. So we did uh, um, Iago as a contrast. So that's that. And then I auditioned with that for three or four places and I got into Bristol and I got into RADA. I love the fact that someone at the BBC, because that sort of happened to me. I wanted to be an actor. I had no idea. There was nobody in my family who were in the profession. There was nobody I could ask. And the only way I knew about actors was via the television, via the BBC. And I'd watch things on the television, like cold it's or whatever. So I just literally wrote to the BBC and said, I want to be an actor. Yeah. And I must have landed on someone's desk and they wrote back to me and said, have you tried drama schools and things like that? I that was no it. Idea. Yeah. But again, is you just have to do it, don't you? Sometimes. Yeah. But then you get to RADA. I mean, how intimidating for that. I was in the term below you at RADA and obviously your term, as we now know, is the star term. It always did have, I mean, there was people like Rafe Fiennes, Jane Horrocks, yourself, Neil Dudgeon, Ian Glenn. I mean, Imogen Stubbs. There was, and you all seemed to get on very well. It was a wonderful sort of term, even though we, we didn't know what you would all go on to do. It was still quite intimidating. But how was it for you on your first day going to sort of a drama school like that? Uh, I, uh, I felt a bit, I mean, I felt a bit like a bumpkin really. I mean, I, uh, I, I, it's funny thinking, thinking back now, I, um, I was slightly intimidated, I suppose over, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm a sort of, uh, introvert extrovert, you know, one of those probably like a lot of actors. And, uh, so the introverts sort of, <laughs> probably, uh, I just sort of, but I, I was also quite open. So I just sort of dived in a bit, you know, I dived into it and that, you know, we had friendships and, you know, that was all part of it. And uh, I, 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 I enjoyed the weird stuff we did. We did some weird kind of, you know, um, Tessa Marwick, wasn't it? Who did mm -hmm. this weird sort of, energy field stuff. So there's all that stuff. Then there was the kind of classical stuff, which I hadn't had a, 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 an ear for previously, particularly. Um, so I was a bit of a sponge. I was an open book and I think that's a good, good place to be. I really wanted to learn. And, um, I went to it, you know what I mean? I went, I went to it and, uh, and got, got, and got a lot from it, I, I think. And, uh, and but met, there was you know, no, there like, was no TV or film training there, was there? We were never taught how to work on a film set or how to work with camera in any way. Where did you learn that? Did you was that just literally on your first day on a film set that you had to you, learn? You do it on the hoof, yeah. I mean, 
uh, you, you, you do, don't you? I think you you watch. You just watch. Hopefully, you get into something that's good, and you watch those good people doing. And I mean, I remember doing something called um, Duck Patrol, which um, I'm not sure is a particularly a benchmark in British comedy uh, heritage. But I mean, it was um, it was it was good, and I mean, it, had, it was it was a comedy with Richard Wilson, David Tennant. Uh, Samantha Beckinsale and Sue Johnson. And uh, I, I remember thinking, Sue, sort of like, I'm trying to think how, how long I'd been in the business in terms of how much television I'd done. Not, not, not that much, perhaps, at that time. But she sort of whispered most of her lines. I thought, oh, that's interesting. And she, brew, she drew, the cam, drew the camera into her. I thought, well, that, well that's interesting. Um, you don't have to present like sometimes you do in the theatre and explain the dangers you can often actors who work in the theatre can over-explain their performances in on camera. And not that they necessarily do that on the stage, but it's about communicating it out to a group. But she was pulling everybody in. I thought, oh, that's interesting. So then you go, well, I'm going to have a go at that, you know. So you, and hopefully you, you, you find your way. And I, so little things like that. And I think also... Um, uh, a thing I did called The Russian Bride um, with a, a director, I think it's called Nick Renton, I think. And he he said, oh, I work with this, this actor. And what he does, he keeps this little book of ideas and things and he sticks them in and doesn't tell anybody about it. But uh, that's his process. I thought, well, that's interesting. So I started a little book of ideas about, and I think those sort of things where you can do what you, and as we talk about Christopher Jeffries, I think this probably comes more into focus. You can sort of do what the hell you like. You don't have to tell everybody about it. But if you enjoy that process, a bit like, you know, simply like learning lines. I quite like learning lines because that's where you start doing your work. It's where you employ your imagination. It's not just learning lines. Sometimes it is. Some jobs that I've done, you get reams of stuff the night before and that's the process. But even then you're making decisions, but you make creative decisions. So... It was a way, once you start the business, to answer your question about, you know, learning beyond just learning, training about the theatre. You learn as you start working and you pick up these things as you go and these little, and you try and, like a book in itself, you, you take bits of the things you see. And what, so just to get back to Jeffries, you've done your little thing with Roger and, and Kevin on the camera. It's gone to the the faceless people who are also making the decisions and they say yes. What, from the moment you get the yes on it, what are you doing then? Are you immediately meeting Christopher himself? Yeah. I mean, Peter, Peter was still writing versions and, uh, I think I, we got the script um, and we started looking at just reading the script, which, you know, was extraordinary. I mean, you know, and Peter's got this really great way of writing for actors, I think. And I just knew how to do it. I mean, I just knew how I was going to do it simply from how he'd written it. Um, but, which I'll talk a bit more about, but I mean, I... Um, yeah, um, we we then thought we'd go and meet Christopher. And I think I was slightly resistant, actually, at first. So I don't know why. Perhaps I was a bit scared, David. I, I don't know. Mm. I'm a bit daunted. Because uh, I'd got so much of YouTube and there were lots of documentaries about him. And I got him. I felt I'd, I'd captured, ca captured him. Um, 
and he said, oh, well, no, let's, let's go down and meet, and meet him. So we went down to Bristol and we, 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 we sat, yeah, we went to his flat, actually, um, and, and met him there. Um, and I think, actually, no, the, first, the very first time I met him, I met him on my own in a cafe in, in Clifton. Okay. And, and there he was, you know, this person I'd been staring at for quite, quite some time. And, uh, of course, I did that classic thing where we, we were having a coffee and I asked him a question about where he was educated early on in the conversation. And then off he went and he you know, sort of talking about everything and just sort of... Um, and I was just watching the way he... <laughs> watching him like a hawk. And then, stupidly, I asked him the same question because I wasn't concentrating. And he said, well, I, I told you, haven't I? So, you know, I don't care to... Uh, you know, like, uh, elocution lesson. I went to uh, <laughs> Cambridge, but and so I'd kind of he found me out because I was I wasn't listening to what he was saying. I was listening to how he was saying it. Yeah. Um. But that, I mean, meeting him is just you've always got to do it if you can because yes. he just is up the gold, doesn't it? I think you really get a feeling for him, and and we took that stage further in that the next time we went, Roger and I and. Christopher sat in a room. I think it was in his, uh, once was in his flat and another, another room somewhere else. And he and Roger went through the script and I watched. So I watched, I wasn't the one engaged in having the responsibility of having the conversation with Christopher. I could listen and watch and observe, impersonate, and I was free to pop in the odd question Along the lines of how are you feeling at this moment? What did you feel when you were arrested? What did you feel when they extended your time in custody? What did you, all those sorts of things. How did you feel about Joanna's loss? How did you, all those sorts of things. But I could watch him and that's when I really sort of got, got the impersonation down then because I was free to observe him. But when Roger's going through the script with him and you're observing him, is that a process where you're... A, obviously, there's the physicality side. I want to talk about the two difference between this is the physicality of him and then there's the emotional interior clock of him, really. Are you watching um, how he's moving, how he's reacting to Roger, or are you then, like you said before in the cafe, are you more also listening to what he's saying, how he's saying it, his emotional journey through the piece as well? Because I thought that's what you gauged brilliantly was a man whose life was just picked up and thrown around in such a terrible way, the yeah. emotional impact it had on him. Yeah. In terms of the sort of, exter of the external stuff, I was free to do all that. And what was dawning on me as he spoke was that he, it, it was something that one of the ingredients that made him appear guilty was that if you asked him a question, he would pause and then he would speak because he'd have a beat where he would formulate the answer in his mind. He's thinking, where am I going to start with this? And then he would start and it would be this wonderful answer that would go may to be, he would cross-reference this, cross-reference that. It would be such a rich and full response I thought, God, that's interesting. I mean, the, the, the eloquence was extraordinary. Oh, God, that's interesting. I thought that, that in itself was interesting. And that pause of just, if you ask someone an easy question, you know, what do you have for breakfast? And someone pauses. 
you think, oh, hang about, what is he, what am I? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're immediately suspicious. Yeah. yeah. So that was interesting. But also, you always, as an actor, you want to go, God, how are you feeling at that moment? That must have been incredible. When, uh, you know, when, when Gordon Brown, when, you know, when Tony Blair said, you know, what do you think about this arrangement? I don't know. Or, and as I said, how did you feel when you were arrested? What, were you ever fearful of being convicted, knowing that you were innocent? And, and all those emotional things that we think we've definitely got to find, real people don't often want to give it up. They don't, they, they don't want you to know. People aren't demonstrative necessarily. I think a lot of people are very private and they don't tell you their innermost thoughts, their emotional feelings. People aren't being emotional over the place. They're guarded and the sort of levels of how much people tell you about what they really feel has a massive interest. I think, you know what I mean? You, as people think, how much, is he telling me? How much of the truth is he really telling me? How much is he concealing? Is he being completely open with me? You know, it, it, it's a kind of, and we sort of British supposedly have this quite sort of tradition for it of not really, of being quite guarded and not really saying how we, what we think, uh, what's saying, what, what we really feel. With Christopher, I, I don't think he was guarded at all in any sort of sinister way, but I think he was a very, very private person. So I thought in terms of performing him, that's quite interesting that he's not going to give you this roller coaster emotional journey. It, he is in the middle of one. And when someone is in the middle of the one, they are not necessarily on an emotional roller coaster themselves showing you it. They're not necessarily, you know, they're trying to sort of resist, resist and bear. I think those are the things that I'm going to bear this in a sort of, he was a religious man, in a sort of Christian way. I'm going to bear this adversity. You know, someone else has, you know, Joni Ace died. You know, she was murdered. He has got to bear the adversity that he's confronted with. So, and I think, and added with that was also Christopher's, he'd hold your stare. He'd hold, he'd be very still and he would hold, he'd look you square in the eye and have no, He'd be almost as he's looking at you. He's, you can see his brain thinking about, you know, it, maybe it's a sort of teaching technique as well. Yeah. And I thought filmically, God, that's really interesting. So you've got someone who is still, which we know as film actors is a good quality many in many ways, that you have a stillness that drink, talking about Sue Johnson, you know, brings your audience into you, inside your brain a bit. He's got that and he's got this he's got this sort of stillness and he's got that he's not going to give up everything that he's thinking at every single moment and that he's not going to be necessarily over emotional and i suppose for a leading leading character in the middle of a piece that's a really good quality because everything else then can bounce off him and for an audience is that constantly thinking oh what's he what's he thinking was he what's you know how can he um and but there's an that, element but, of mystery but there's a great 
for me, you know, you have your big scenes, you have that great dialogue, you have, you know, scenes like in the police cell, you have scenes like at the Leveson Inquiry, stuff like that. But really the wonderful illuminating moments sometimes are the quietest moments when he's left in the cell on his own, when he goes back to his flat after the police have sort of been in there and not tidied up and he just sees when he opens up the Milton and it's been destroyed, having, and we've seen it before when it's in its pristine condition. You yeah. know, those quiet moments speak volumes for us. I mean, when you're reading a script and you see, you know, usually they're the moments that are just, there is a scene and they're written in one sentence. Are you able to see the power in that, that um, those moments convey to us? Uh, that's writing, isn't it? I mean, that's brilliant writing. Um, and you know, Peter, Peter has challenges in, in the Crown, doesn't he? That there's this argument about fact and reality, and you know, the thing is that that um, the Milton was a dramatic device by Peter, but it was so perfect in its um, the idea was perfect because. Yes, there you see a man of books early on in the film caring so deeply about them, talking about them, imparting his all his energy and knowledge into his pupils based on liter- on the joy of literature. And 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 I always felt that Christopher was sort of the he felt partly that he was the keeper of the keys of language in a way, because he was so eloquent, his choice of words. So yes, for a book to be trashed is is brilliant. And you know, I, I think you 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 sort of look at it and you on the page and you go, God, that's brilliant. But when you do it, you're kind of resisting going there. When 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 um because you know the power of the story and the construct of the way it's been constructed will do all that for you. And it's brave to do nothing. Mm. Sometimes you just do nothing and there's nothing there and there's no context and it's flat. But when it's written and you don't need to do anything, that's great. But I can't say, that, to be honest, that I was the one who said, I'm not going to do anything here. That's, that's your director, isn't it? Are, nothing- you, are, you ever aware, are you aware as an actor of the frame, the composition of a shot and yourself in it? Are you being placed in it by a director or, you, or are you part of that process where you think uh, you know what the frame looks like? I'm thinking of one particular shot of you in the police cell where you're sitting there and you've got your meal container on one side and your legs are crossed and your physicality. And it says so much about the man. Are you, do you watch the monitor? Do you watch yourself in those moments? No, I, I don't think I ever watched the monitor. I didn't, I can't remember. I don't, I, I, I wasn't some occasionally I sometimes do that. And I think as I get, I get more and more camera literate about sizes of lenses and, framing but i think with that uh, and what you can communicate and what how what level of performance you need to give dependent on what but you can get hung up on that you, you you can lose the outside bit going out and you worry too much about on the outside going in and i i can't remember that i ever uh was preoccupied with how i looked clearly it was all working and it felt right it felt so right. I almost felt like the planets were sort of aligning. It was weird that it was all sort of fitting. And so I, I resisted having to monitor myself. I just thought it's from the outside, 
from the inside out it's happening but also roger is just this is 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 a master so uh, when we read the newspapers think about moments when clive panto christopher's friend invites him to his house to stay and then christopher was unaware of the the articles that had been written about him and he opens the news the papers i he said roger said well what do you think you would would do uh let's see what happens so i started reading them and then i sort of stood up and then i sort of crumpled in my chair and he and he went uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know i thought oh this is going to be really dramatic where the, the the all these articles destroying his character publicly uh dissecting his hair the way tools uh the, the they'd got stuff from supposedly what people had said about him that he was creepy all that that he was in that moment sort of decimated but i think it what what we settled on and what we didn't settle on what was clearly right so that roger intimated was that he bears it the audience can the audience are going oh my god how terrible how distressing how his whole life has fallen apart and then clive shows in the photograph the, the footage of the his uh, head the headmaster of the school where he was teaching and uh, uh distancing uh distancing christopher from that institution that he had you know he'd spent his whole life and dedicated his whole life to all these pupils that being you know saying that oh he worked here once the school's got nothing to do with him and again it, it's bearing it resist resisting going we'll be back with more chat after this hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time with me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. But it's also, what's wonderful in the piece is it's like Christopher realizing that there's this other world that exists, like he had this blueprint of how the world worked and that he'd lived by for 60-odd years. He had his certainties of how the world was and how people were. 
And suddenly at a very late age, he's being disabused of that. He's suddenly going, oh my goodness, there's a different world here. People are much more complex and grubbier than I thought. And it's the confusion on his face is what really breaks your heart, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, the, yeah, the piece works as a, you know, the, a celebration of the eccentric as well as uh, a murder case and as well as an, a sort of expose, if that's the right word, of the way that sometimes newspapers operate. But also so, I think what I meant by the frame, I think, is what's, uh, you know, there's, there's something with his hands. When you meet him, he has a really interesting way of using his hands. And Roger really uses that in in the storytelling as well, right from mm. the right from off the bat when you turn off the alarm uh, at the bedside. Yes. Alarm. And there's something in that metaphor or sort of visual sort of language that we get through the piece, which is wonderful. Uh, are you aware of that? That is being used as a storytelling device. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you could, but that, that I would argue that that when you meet Christopher. That's one of the things that really strikes you. And actually talking to sort of former pupils, they would say, oh, yeah, he had these, these hands, that he, the way he would um, use his fingers. And in fact, Clara, my, my wife, you know, she said that you were, you were still doing that strange hand thing many months after finishing playing him. Um, I, yeah, when I met Christopher, you could see he had, his nails are kept quite long. And uh, uh, I mean, longer than is 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 usual and i i think at one moment when we're having one of those sessions uh, early on he went to open the window because and he sort of caught a nail and i said oh i thought god this is the moment to ask him and i said yeah chris i just want to ask you why do you keep your nails so long and he went are they <laughs> which which in itself is really interesting is he doesn't quite get he doesn't quite get that that is not that slightly that was interesting but for me, yeah, I mean, I think Matt Pointer was the focus puller. And Matt noticed, he said, we, he said, don't forget to do that bit because he, he, he's got something. I think it was the scene with Anna Maxwell Martin when she apologises. She says, oh, I apologise on behalf of Bristol for, for thinking that you were whatever, uh, that you were possibly uh, responsible, and I apologise um, and I'm holding the bag which he which he has, and the, my hands are working. And Matt, I think he managed to just zoom in and got it's a lovely moment. And that's all Matt. That's all what what focus pullers can do, you know, uh, because he like as we're talking had spotted, and as I did had spotted these the hands. For me, it was really clear what that was, and I think I probably shared that with Roger, even if he hadn't realised it himself. Is that's him thinking. I mean, it really is, it's, it's somehow he's using, it, it, it kind of, that's his thinking time. And, you know, I said those sort of pauses earlier on where he's thinking about it, that's when they would start, you know, and he played the harpsichord. So, you know, he's got a lot of his thoughts and his emotions go into his, into the, the, the keyword, the, the, the keyboard. Um, so it, it's all part of that. It's his brain working. We talked earlier on about the rhythm of the brain and all those sort of things. And, and you know, listen, we're talking about it, so let's talk about it a bit because that, that is what I thought it was. It, it was to do with his brain and the way it worked and the rhythm. And, and so the hands are always going, always working. Um, 
and yeah, and it did become a sort of me metaphor, but I never really played it. I think that was to do with, you know, Mike Ely, the DOP, and Roger going, let's have a little bit of one of those. And then you're realising, yeah, okay, I'm now touching the clock, so I need to just take my time a little bit so that they can... That's where the experience comes in, because you can't just bang the alarm clock. You know that they're going to follow you. You need to just take a little bit more time off it so they can capture it, you know, those sorts of... The ex experience is, is good in that respect. And also, you know, it was never, a, it never looked like a device. It always looked like you were getting insight into character. And I thought that was what was wonderful. And that's what's great about Roger, I think. And I've seen a lot of his work is all his choices come via character uh, rather yeah. than sort of signaling things to the audience. Just to talk about the, the look, though, you know, the wig and stuff, and you're involved with the, the the sort of costume person, you're involved with the makeup person. What was it like, was there a moment when you first walked out in front of Christopher as Christopher, and what was that like? Uh, yeah, there was, actually. Um, and again, you know, Christopher's he, he's sort of reserved. He wouldn't say, oh, my God, you know, just like me. He'd be sort of, you know, sort of... Sort of smile a bit, and then. Uh, but you could see that he, he uh, it sort of fit. It was um, a, a strange thing for him to witness. But we were filming outside. We filmed at his house, the exterior stuff. We built the in interior of his flat at the Bottle Yard Studios. So we were there, which was which was unnerving uh, in many ways, um, because we and we walked past the flat where Joanna died and in fact what would have been the, the place where she died or was murdered but we never went in that flat we didn't but we had to get one day we had to go past the entrance which was but we were I think we were all very focused on we may have time to talk about that but the whole crew was all focused on what we were making and what had happened and what had been lost to a family and you know so we were very conscious of um, of that, but I was outside dressed as Christopher, and on the other side of the road, the quite broad roads there down in Clifton, was one of his neighbours, and uh, about probably about uh, sort of thirty metres away, and he turned. I could see him, and he waved waved to me, went hello, Christopher. <laughs> so I thought, <laughs> okay, we've cracked it, you know. Um, so. Uh, so I said, but certain people thought that I was him. His <laughs> points, even though there were cameras pointing at me. Um, uh, but yeah, there was a time I think when, when I think uh, Kevin Lode has got a photograph of us standing next to each other in Clifton, looking very similar. Yeah. But there's a point, isn't there, where you have to sort of take ownership of the character away from the real person, isn't there? Really, that that, that you're honouring him, you're doing it, but. Because it's not an impersonation, is it? No. I mean, I mean, you go beyond the impersonation. Of course, that's they're the broad strokes you do. But there's a point, surely, in the piece when you think, "I am playing this character as it's me." In a way, you know, I, I think you have to take it away from him in a way. And at one point, yeah, yes, yeah, so that's true. And uh, yeah, I mean, when when he, Christopher came to see his arrest. He came to watch his own arrest, so he was on the he was on the monitors watching himself me get arrested, um, and and I, I he he said he found it strange, 
Um, but at the time, he wouldn't know it. He sort of laughed it off a bit. But I think after he said he had found it strange um, and had reminded him of, of, of how it was when he was uh, arrested. Um, but, yeah, it's, it, you're guided by the, the writing. I'm trying not to be convenient here in my answer because, yeah, you do take it away from, from him. But I, I was so deep into the kind of impersonation that I... And I was being led by the scenes that we were doing, led by the words, crafting the words, listening to my fellow actors, trying to react as much as I could and not be responsible for every beat, just trying to give up, let go a lot of a lot of stuff and just react and see that where that would lead me. Mm. So there wasn't a kind of conscious shedding of my impersonation of Christopher, I just got led by, you know, frankly, the really brilliant scenes that were written, yes. and the speeches and trying to craft them. And, and I, I think suppose- what I'm trying to get as that the, the word impersonation always strikes me as, you know, a, a turn, something yeah. that, you know, there's a sort of light entertainment turn to that uh, expression. Yeah. And of course, that's where we start from but you have to go beyond that because it becomes emotional. It's not a spitting image and it's not, yeah. you know, yeah. the, the younger listeners, Mike Yarwood, who is an impersonator, you know, it's not that, isn't it? And, and I know you've played quite a few, obviously, Harold Wilson, Brian Masters and stuff. It goes beyond the the broad brush strokes of a walk, a lot yeah. a mannerism, isn't it? Yeah. And that, for me, that is that, that, that as I, really st- weirdly starting with Christopher Jeffries, that's what's really interests me the most. And, you know, having played Brian, that it was in the same boat, you know, I really find that really interesting of being to, able to imp- imp- impersonate someone, but be absolutely real. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge. And I, I want to do as much of that kind of work as possible. When I was um, 15, 16, I was very, very good at cricket and I ended up impersonating the whole of my adult cricket team in the bar afterwards. That was my one of my party pieces. Uh, and, but I sort of weirdly let all that go a little bit when I started working as an actor and I started just doing plays and I'd do characters and voices and accents, which I'm good at, but I'd never got to really do a lot of straight impersonation. So with, with, with Christopher, yeah, I, I, um, I met this Hungarian actor once in, in Hungary um, doing an April, April de Angelis play um, uh, um, oh gosh, what's it called? This, this is terrible now. Um, oh, it was about the time at uh, the Drury Lane Theatre, David Garrick. It was a play about David Garrick. Oh, yes, yes. National yes. Theatre. Uh, I can't believe it because she's going to kill me now. Anyway, but this uh, Hungarian company chose that play to uh, uh, a matter of something it's called. Um, uh, chose that play to reopen their theatre in Hungary that had been renovating. They asked me to come over and sort of witness, watch their version of it, which was absolutely brilliant. Um, and uh, I just got talking to this actor, a uh, Hungarian actor, and he was saying, yeah, you know, acting's a bit like um, being on a tightrope, isn't it? That uh, at one end you've got you and at the other end you've got your character. And I think this really well illustrates what we're just talking about is that yeah. you've got your, at one end, you've got your balancing 
you know, hand wringing, strange hair, interesting walk person. And the other end is you. And you do try and meet in the middle. And in a way, you need to balance in the middle. And if you, that's what you're trying to find. So it won't ever be an impersonation because you brought so much of your own feelings mm-hmm. and your own, I mean, I, I think, you know, sometimes, and it, it's great that this, this kind of podcast exists because we can talk a little bit more freely about how we, you know, in a bit more depth about what one works and what one believes. But, you know, what, what I do as a job is is something that I feel very passionate about mm-hmm. and that I as a has a political sense to it, it has an artistic sense to it. It's my it reflects my view of the world because we're lucky as artists that we can do that. Mm-hmm. And and my view is I'm I hope I hope I'm a very compassionate person and uh I um love the underdog. I love adversity and overcoming adversity and how one does that and that that's has increased in my life because obviously some of the things that I've been through. So I bring all of that to my side of the tightrope and I walk across it with as much of that as I can carry. And when we meet the, you know, the character that I'm playing, then, you know, I hope that it's filled up and I venture enough of my own life and my life view and my life experience in those moments and 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 it doesn't happen all the time you know other jobs think oh god i've just got to get the lines out it's we've got five minutes to go and i don't know understand what they mean i just need to get them out without fucking up and that's a big but that's a big part of our job as well in fact that i think is i encounter that quite a lot Uh, you know i went to work the other day and i got to the set in the morning and they said oh did you get the rewrites and i was like um no and they just (laughs) yeah and i I was like so you sort of have to deal with that as well and i think you know part of the acting job is uh is being blindsided by those things and you just have to jump in sometimes Uh, the play you were talking about was a laughing matter i think thank you so much no worries that's great (laughs) Oh, I'd, li- I'd like to claim that that just came to me, but I, I just yeah, I did I, see a you message flicking, on my screen. <laughs> flicking over on your iPhone there. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, which I think sometimes uh, is difficult for actors, there's one scene in episode one when you're being interrogated and it's four actors around a table and it's a long, long scene. Uh, are you... You know, and it's you being interrogated by two policemen. When you're not in the scene, when you're not uh, shooting it, are you talking to those other actors? Are you staying in character? Are you are you keeping a space for yourself? How do you look after yourself? I presume a scene like that, or a number of scenes in the same locale, take a, a while yeah. to shoot, maybe a couple of days. How yeah, do yeah. you keep your concentration? The camera, Rogers' cameras everywhere in that scene. Yeah. How do you stay in it? Well, um, I think I, I mean they're 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 great scenes. Um, we'd got access to the transcripts of the of the real transcripts, so we had all of them, and they are amazing because they're often trivial in there. <laughs> sort of conversations about cats and cars and stuff, uh, um, but of course they they have great huge weight to them as well. They're really, 
one part of my answer is that I absolutely loved speaking the words. <laughs> so it's like, this is such a good scene and I, I can't wait to do it again. I mean, it doesn't happen all the time, that, does it? Sometimes you think, oh, God, I just want to get the scene done. I get, you know, but that, I thought, oh, I just wonder how many times can we do this? So there's a bit of that and, and dependent on the on where the camera was and where it was pointing. And, and also, you know, sometimes you can you can have an eye out for another actor when it's there close up. And, you know, that sort of thing, you've got to make sure that you give, give, give them what they need to do their performance. You've got to stay, you know, and you can get tired and you've, you've got to give them as much as they get. You have to, because, you know, that's all part of the deal as far as I'm concerned, you know, that you, 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 and then, you know, sometimes when you are, if the camera's on them first, you know, you've got to keep a little bit back for little freshness for when you get to your close up, but you've got to give them what they need. So that, that for me, sometimes over a many, a long scene over many days, that that's a game that you play, I think. Um, and, and also that as you're doing it, you allow yourself to try and forget what was working well sometimes and just be brave and try and just listen and just go with whatever's coming at you. And then that will take you somewhere else. So, you know, if you're doing it a few times, there's room to, room to do it in lots of different ways and be brave about doing it differently. Let what some other character says to you take you by surprise and see where it lands. And I think once you've done it many, many times, the lines are in there and they're not going anywhere. You're not going to... Because you always worry about drying and fucking up. I mean, that's constantly... Do you, do you worry about continuity? Is that something, you know, that if you did something in a wide shot and you're coming into this close-up and you have to remember what it... Is that something that you fight or do you naturally have a capacity for uh, absorbing that? I'm usually pretty good. I'm, I'm props props can drive you mad occasionally. But, you know, once you do the once you do the, the wide shot and you're working out, sort of work out what you're doing with your props and stuff, you get in the wide, then you start, it becomes a choreography, then, then you repeat and you don't have to think about it as much. But it's got to come out something real. Sometimes I think sometimes directors impose those upon you and they don't sit within the way your brain's working and that, and that can become difficult. But in, in this, no, there was never a, an issue and you could feel that, as, as you get more experience, you know roughly what they might use in the edit. So then you can tailor your performance a little bit to what is going to be used and what isn't. So when you get into close-up, you know, it's either either or, either or now. And I think we're going to use close-up here. So something that I'd done in the mid shot, which I didn't like, I think, well, we're going to be in close now. So I can probably get away with doing something which I feel looks, feels better. I mean, I've worked with actors that, uh, just don't give a toss at all. I mean, I did a film many, many years ago and the continuity one was pulling a hair out and he was this uh, French-Canadian actor whose name escapes me who was in uh, Fargo, uh, the other the other hitman who was, who was brilliant. And he, but he had no, he didn't care. He didn't just move and just, it was so fresh and brilliant, but he was free and he had unfettered by the constraints of continuity. Um, I so, wish I was um, like that. Yeah, I know, because you've got to do it a bit, haven't you? Because you think, you know, and that's because you think, oh, well, you can't use that, you know. And also if you're, if you're, if the camera's on somebody else and you just sort of smoke your cigarette at a certain point and you think, oh, now that is across, that's across somebody's close-up, you know, A, one tries not to do that and you can work that out. I've seen that work the other way where people do want yes, to do exactly. that. Yes, <laughs> exactly. But, uh, but I tend not to do that. But you do have to match because you know that it's, they're, they're fine work that you're watching. Not all of it can be used. So those those sort of things, uh, 
I, I keep um, I keep in mind. But between takes on Christopher Jeffries, I was uh, I was quite sort of chatty, really. Um, I like I like to stay in the mood, stay in the mood. Um, but we've got into a rhythm and uh, maybe we felt that we knew that we were doing good work. I think that's really good because sometimes when I start a job, I'm a little less approachable than when I've had a couple of weeks into the job because I'm yeah. sort of trying to keep myself because I don't really know what I'm doing. Yeah. So I'm trying to yeah. keep my brain in in, in, in the character. But yeah, as, I, mean, I, I, work, as mm. I relax, I open up a bit more. Yeah, and um, working with Stellan Skarsgård on The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, who's a wonderful man and a great raconteur and interested in life and such a nice guy. Uh, he very much stayed, in, he was very much in the zone, pacing around all the time. And again, you know, whatever you need to do, Try and make the space to do it. No one's going to say, oh, look at him over there. He's keeping himself to himself. Well, that's what I needed to do. And I'd say on Christmas Depth, I did do a bit of that. And in my work, I like, I like a bit of silence before we go into a take. I like just to get my head. I mean, some people don't. They just like to keep talking, 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 and then go into the take. And you go, okay, that's the way they work. I, that's fine. But I need this. And so with Christopher, I, I was quite chatty, sort of in between when we're doing setups, but then as you got closer to the take, I just start, just drift into find some quietness and then start, you know. And all jobs are different. I mean, you know, you've talked about your approach to Christopher, but would that be the same for you if you were doing Trolleyed or W1A? No, no, no. no. Well, <laughs> W1A is, W1A is a, is a challenge for everybody. And I think part of that is that uh, what we were doing that is we just run the lines over and over and over again, right through, through make through the makeup chair while we we all got mic'd in the same room at uh, I think we were at Pinewoods and uh, for the interiors and so we just kept running and we were running the lines as we walked down the corridor onto the set we ran the lines while they were setting up the cameras and it was that because we knew we knew that was the process with Trollid yeah that was sometimes you don't think about it at all and just trying to find a bit of magic and comedy magic I mean I'm doing this thing called McDonald and Dodds you know for ITV about the mm -hmm. detective and I, I'm, I'm so enjoying it. And, you know, me and Tyler Gavire, who play the McDonald and Dodds, you know, there's a little bit of comedy stuff going on. And you think, oh, that's what we need to do. So going and being morose in the corner thinking about stuff is not what's required. And I, I think, like in Phoenix, in one of the articles that he wrote sometime, was that he said that the process can be completely different depending on the project. And uh, I think that's very true. I think that's very true. But I would say that something like Des was not far off working like on Christopher Jeffries. Um, uh, and certainly David Tennant, he did take keep himself to himself. And you could see, I've worked with David a few times and I could see, oh, hang about, he just needs that space. Uh, and, and, and it wasn't uh, kind of, um, uh, uh, it didn't stop anybody else working, but just, you're watching thinking, oh, that's unlike David, he just needs to get his brain you know, I think it's always all right to to ask for your space. You know that that's that's a lesson that I had to learn. That all jobs are different. All jobs are requiring different things from me, and I, it's okay for me to find that in different. If I have to take myself off, if I have to plug in my you know my music or whatever. But some jobs I can do. I can be chatty. I can, and it doesn't necessarily always follow that. If I'm doing a comedy, I'm 
accessible. And if I'm doing a heavy drama, I'm not. And sometimes it can be the other way around. But like doing Blackpool, which was a big old uh, comedy thing, I I was not that accessible because it was it was tough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, can I ask you about also with Christopher Jeffries and maybe with Dares as well? Are there are there lawyers all over that script as well? Do, do you have to do things like the, uh, that scene in the in the uh, in the jail in the in the police station? Do you have to be verbatim on that in your lines? Is there a is there um, a friction over it? Yeah, I mean, I think. I'm right in saying that there was one piece of information, which I can't share with you, but uh, there's one piece of information in, I think it was the second episode of Christopher Jeffries, which uh, was, it wasn't inaccurate. Uh, It was um, something to do, it was, it was, um, I mean, even talking about it, I think, oh, my God, I'm going to get the lawyer. Well, but just in general terms. Yeah. They had to re-edit something. They had to re-edit something and take uh, something out that could have been potentially ambiguous. And there was at one point they were saying, shit, are we are not, may not be able to get episode two out this week. It might, and, and the editor went in overnight and changed the locked-off script to take, to take something out. Um, yeah, I think, again, I think that was all kept really behind the scenes the scenes I wasn't privy to that I uh that was somebody else's department and uh I think that's a good lesson as well isn't it particularly if you become a leading actor or you're doing leading roles there's still stuff that you don't need to be thinking about other people can do that and you need to, you still always just need to remember that you need to do your work yes and I think, I think that's can... really essential I think you know leading actor you're there to set a tone in a way, but about how you work, but also everybody's there to do their job. You're not there to do their job for them. <laughs> yeah. And it can be chaos. And sometimes directors, you young, occasionally younger directors, they're micromanaged because they worry about uh, what quite rightly one can worry about the product at the end, the film that you're making at the end or the episode. Uh, but you've got to just delegate as you get older, you think, well, look, that, they can do that. They're really good at that. I'll let them do that. And they may teach me something. Uh, so, uh, yeah. And I think as a, as a leading actor, yeah, you have to let, I mean, on stage, you know, one of the, if you're lucky enough to play a leading part, a lot of the time is actually getting out of the way and letting your supporting actors have their moments because they, they tell the story of your character. So in, I think that goes, it's the same in, in, in TV sometimes that, you know, you've got to, got to allow everything around you to take you by surprise and not feel you've got to run everything and control everything. You can't. You touched on something before that I wanted to bring up, which a, a show like Christopher Jeffries and Dares, are they problematic to you in a sense that, you know, at the heart of them is, you know, the, is a murder of someone and you have to be respectful around that. And I know that the writers on both those dramas are, but how aware are you about the story you're having to tell? Well, well, David, I mean, you know what sort of my personal story in this is, is, is on the time that Christopher was in custody over that new year and uh, uh, Christmas and New Year, Clara and I lost our daughter. 
to sepsis on new, on the morning of New Year's Day. So I know what it is to um, have lost a child and a daughter. So, and as I was saying, you know, on about being on the tightrope, you know, you you do occasionally have to bring that stuff along with you, and it does because it we're, we're fortunate that we're able to express things like that in our work and share it, you know, and um, by that it helps us and hopefully other people. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, at the heart of it is this terrible loss of uh, some a daughter. And it's hard because you think, oh, we're making a TV programme about it and, you know, um, it was a huge success. But when we were making it, we all really knew what we were, what we were doing. We were writing, we were making something that was about it it was a fascinating story of a fascinating man and what he went through but it was also at its heart was the loss of a of someone of a child and of a life that was unnecessarily snubbed out and it's a real privilege to be in something where everybody and talking about different departments everybody was so focused so delicate um and it was a very special special thing um to be at the, in the middle of that so yeah, and there's a final uh, scene isn't there there's a final scene with her boyfriend with greg which i think is essential and i think lesser writers wouldn't have put that scene in um the, there is a sense that joe comes back into the story and we we really do hear about what it means to the people who loved her yeah and uh, also, I think in there's a montage of them going through the flat as it was as it was mm-hmm. when she was last there. Mm-hmm. All the little details of her life, which is in, I find incredibly moving. And and then yes, at the end there is the acknowledgement of of what has happened. And also, Joe challenges Christopher. Says, mm-hmm. "You've changed," and he's I think I can't remember what the line says. No, have I? Have I changed? You have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he did. He had changed, and he came. He became a different person at the end of it. Um, uh, so that that yes, and all all that is reflected brilliantly in that scene. Yes, yeah, so and he has changed. I mean, not just physically changed, but he becomes a personality, doesn't he? Because you know, you suddenly see him asking for his expenses to be, you know, on his trip to, you know, various yeah. functions, you know. Literary festivals. Yeah, yeah. And, but he sort of, he's, he suddenly sees the world in a different way. Yeah, uh, I mean, you could, yeah, you could say, yeah, I mean, you could say that um, that's happened to me a bit since that film came out. I've, I've, I've had, and, and I owe it to that story and I owe it to, you know, you could say that I, uh um, I'll never forget, you know, that experience and the loss of that child. I mean, it, you know, it has uh, that young person because it has led, you know, to to um, me being able to be part of wonderful projects and 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 you know. So I'm a bit <laughs> weirdly a bit mm. like, but in some ways. And now, I mean, you know, what are you looking for different things in scripts when the script comes? Is it something that is, is you know, you've gone this BAFTA award-winning actor and all that, but are you now looking as a leading actor to challenge yourself in different ways than you would have done before? Or are you just, is it just afforded you the opportunity to do more of what always what you wanted? 
I think it's. I think it's. Um, I think it's kind of. Um, I certainly get more 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 choice. I mean, I still have to, you know, put myself on tape a couple of occasionally for for, for bigger projects. Um, but yeah, I I so, well, as we talked about, sometimes you need to hit your mark and the lights fading, and you know, I, I do a bit of that, and you know, I need to. We all need to earn a living, and you hope that you can t- uh, earn money to support your family and. Um, uh, in a, doing really good projects, and uh, so that's what one looks for. So it, 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 it's a balance between, uh, you know, d- doing stuff that is artistically very interesting and stuff that sort of. Actually, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm being rather convenient with this. I'm just being really. I've been very lucky in the work that's being offered to me, and and it tends to be nice, meaty stuff. And, and, and that's what I sort of want to continue, really. And whether that's a, more of a supporting role like uh, Brian Masters or a leading role like, you know, Christopher, that's fine because I come out of a sort of character acting tradition. I'm not really a, necessarily a leading actor, but what I suppose my hope is that I can find characters that are so fascinating that you might think are kind of more supporting actors because of their complexity and stick them in the middle of something. That's what, and I like being at the, in the middle of, of something. So that's what I'm looking for. But do you have ambitions beyond just acting? Other things that you, do you want yeah. to generate your own work, find your own work? You know, are you in a position now where you can say to someone, "I've read this book or I've read this article," and I quite you know. yeah, I've been well, I've been doing a fair a bit of that, and there's a couple of things floating around that uh, I've tried a couple of things that uh, we got we got a long way with, but didn't get over the line. Um, but I think I'll keep doing that. But I also think that you must always remember that, um, you know, the, the, there's lots of really great stuff that people can see you in that they can go, oh, I think, you know, that you may not realise. So don't think, oh, I've just got to make my own stuff because I know best what I can make. Other people actually do because they can see you, see what you're able to do. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, there's, I've got a couple of things that I hope I can I can. Get, get over the line yeah great stuff jason it's been wonderful to talk to you today thank you it's a i've seen it three times now <laughs> the last time over christopher jeffries and it is every time i see it i see something new in it that blows me away really it's a fantastic performance and a in a wonderful piece of work so thank you for talking about it oh, thank you so much david it is great to talk to you who am i this time is a Just Voices and Dulali production. Produced by Simon Lennigan. Music by Greg Hatwell. Edited and mixed by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. And presented by me, David Morrissey.